Hello friends, welcome to Thinking on Scripture. My name is Stephen Cook. Today I want to talk about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as usual, I will post a link in the description below for a copy of my study notes. It will be available to you in PDF format if you would like to have that. Let me go ahead and jump into this. Uh, Let me start off by saying that the gospel is the solution to a problem. It's the good news that follows the bad news. But we must address the bad news before we get to the good news. But to understand the gospel as a solution to a problem is very helpful for us. Um, And often we get to the what. We explain that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, and that uh, for those who place their faith in Christ and Christ alone, they have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of righteousness, and so on. Uh, But often we don't explain the why behind the what. We don't explain why Christ went to the cross and died. And so understanding that the gospel is the solution to a problem, that it's the good news that follows the bad news, is helpful for us. Now the problem for us is that God is holy, mankind is sinful, and we cannot save ourselves. Now the fact that God is holy is not a problem for God. Obviously it's a problem for us. Being holy means that God is completely set apart from sin. He is completely separate from sin. And being an absolutely righteous God, there's only one thing he can do with sin, and that is to condemn it. Now, he can either condemn it in the offender, or he can judge it in a substitute, which is what makes the cross so beautiful. Because God is holy, mankind is sinful, And we can produce sin, but see, here's the problem. We cannot deal with the problem of sin. And we cannot save ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We are absolutely helpless, and no good works have any saving merit in the sight of God. But again, this is what makes the cross so beautiful, because it's God's solution to the problem of our sin. It's God's solution to the problem of our sin. Because he did what we cannot. He dealt with sin. And when we think about the cross, really two attributes of God should come into focus. One is the absolute righteousness of God, because he judged our sin at the cross. He poured out his wrath upon his son, who willingly went to the cross and died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us. But we also see the attribute of God's love in the sense that he demonstrates at the cross his love towards us, the offender, the sinner the one who has caused offense to God. And you think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And you think of also Romans 5.8, which says that God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again, the gospel is the solution to a problem. It's the good news that follows the bad news. The problem for us is that God is holy, mankind is sinful, and we cannot save ourselves. You see, salvation is never what we do for God. It's never what we do for God. Rather, it's what he's done for us through the person and the work of Jesus, who is the Son of God incarnate, whose sacrificial death on the cross atoned for our sins, who was resurrected, and who grants eternal life to those who place their faith, who place their trust uh, solely in him. Now let's unpack this statement a little bit here. 
First of all, we must understand that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, that he is the second person of the Trinity. And when we think about the doctrine of the Trinity as it's uh, set forth in the Scripture, we realize that God is one in essence, but three in person. To say that he is one in essence means that he shares the same attributes that make up the essential nature of God. And to talk about the attributes of God, we talk about his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, righteousness, justice, sovereignty, love, immutability, veracity, eternal life, graciousness, kindness, gentleness, the fact that he is long-suffering, he is patient towards us. We think of those attributes that make up the essential nature of God. And we also understand that God is three in person, that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that these are co-equal, they share the same attributes, that they are co-infinite, that they are not bound by space, that they are co-eternal, they have always existed, do exist, and forever will exist. And so they are co-equal, co-infinite, co-eternal, and worthy of all honor and worship and praise. Uh, God the Father, from eternity past, planned our salvation. He commissioned the Son and sent the Son into the world. At a point in time, nearly 2,000 years ago, the second member of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, added humanity to himself. This happened in, uh, in, in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We think of Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35, if I remember correctly, where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and informs her that she will conceive in her womb and give birth to a son who is the Messiah, who is the Jewish Messiah, and she will name him Jesus. Now, this is a supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary that was brought about by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit supernaturally placed uh, the humanity of Christ into the womb of the Virgin Mary. We're not sure the particulars of that. We're just told that God the Holy Spirit did that. Uh, and in, uh, in technical terminology, we call that parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis. And that means that uh, Jesus was supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It means virgin conception uh, and virgin birth. And we should also understand that Mary is Christotokos, Christotokos, that she is the bearer of the humanity of Christ. The Catholics refer to her as Theotokos, Theotokos, the mother of God. But that's incorrect because God doesn't have a mother. And so Mary is the mother of the humanity of Jesus, not his deity. But nonetheless, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, at the time of the conception, uh, was the God-man, the theanthropic person, Jesus, theanthropic, theos, God, anthropos, man. And so uh, to use the term theanthropic refers to the God-man, refers uh, to what we in theology call the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is, at one and the same time, undiminished deity, combined together forever with perfect humanity. He is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man, and that these two natures were, by, were combined together forever into one person. So when God the Son added humanity to himself, that union is perpetual. In other words, Jesus came into this world and walked among uh, people, among mankind, 
willingly went to a cross, died, was buried uh, in a grave, three days later rose again, and for 40 days walked among the disciples, the apostles, and others, and then was ascended into heaven. And he is right now continuing in hypostatic union. And when he returns at his second coming in Revelation 19, Matthew 24 and 25 also describe this, uh, after the time of the seven-year tribulation, when he returns, he will return bodily. And he will put down all rebellion, satanic and human. You can read about this in Revelation 19. And he will establish his kingdom on earth, the Davidic kingdom, for 1,000 years, after which the kingdom will be handed over to the Father and it will go into the eternal state. But Jesus is nonetheless the God-man. Now, I say this because if there's any attack by a cult it's against God, it's, it's usually going to be against the deity of Christ. Very few people question his humanity. If anybody questions it or if they attack it, it's usually an attack upon his deity. And here I'm talking about Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, which are cults. They do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And I'm carefully covering this so that you understand that when we talk about faith in Jesus, we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible and not some other Jesus, because another Jesus will not save. It must be the Christ of Scripture. And so he is the Son of God incarnate. Now, we talk about the incarnation, and that is a uh, is a compound word, the preposition in, uh, and then we have karnos, uh, the word for literally for meat, if we think of like chili con carne, chili with meat. It's somewhat of a crude term, but it communicates that he is God in the flesh. Uh, and so we think of John 1, 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you have the Word, who is God, and he is with God. I think this is God the Father and God the Son. But here you have, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, it tells us, And the Word, uh, that is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so you have here the incarnation, uh, the addition where God the Son adds humanity to himself. And of course, I've covered other lessons that talk about the deity of Christ, uh, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time here. I'll just hit on a few verses. Uh, After Jesus' resurrection, when Thomas questioned uh, the Lord's resurrection, and the Lord very graciously appeared to Thomas and showed him uh, the holes in his hands and in his side and demonstrated this to Thomas. And Thomas answered in John twenty twenty eight. and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. So he clearly recognizes the deity of Christ. You think of Hebrews 1, 8, which says, But of the Son, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of course, there's other passages on this, but I'm simply pointing this out to say that what God accomplished for us at the cross was accomplished uh, through the work of Jesus, again, who is the Son of God incarnate. He is the God-man. He is the theanthropic person. And his sacrificial death on the cross atoned for our sins. 
Jesus' death, unlike the uh, animal sacrifices uh, in the Old Testament, which were a type, and he's the antitype, they are the symbol, he is the reality, and so they point forward to him. They were simply didactic. They were simply to be instructional. They were to communicate the righteousness of God, the sinfulness of man, and that an innocent animal would die in place of as a substitute for the one who deserved the judgment. And so, but the animal sacrificial system went on for year after year, decade after decade, century after century, uh, century after century, uh, for many hundreds of years until eventually Jesus arrives. But when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, when he goes to the cross and dies, his death is a one and done event. It is not to be repeated. It was a one-time act. And again, I think of the passage in John one twenty nine, where John points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when everybody turned around, they didn't see a lamb, they saw Jesus because he is the lamb provided by God. He is God's lamb. He is God's sacrifice to atone for sins once and for all. And the Old Testament uh, animals, when they died... It was simply a covering for sin. The word atonement in the Old Testament translates the Hebrew word kafar, kafar, which simply means a covering. It was a temporary, a temporary arrangement where the animal sacrifice simply covered sin. But when Christ comes into the world, when he goes to the cross and dies for the sins of humanity, he actually takes away sin. He actually removes sin. And so in theology, we call this the doctrine of expiation. The doctrine of expiation. And so whereas the Old Testament animal sacrifices were a temporary repeated covering of sin, when Christ comes it is a one-time event. That's why in Romans 6.10 it says the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. He died to sin once for all. And you can also look at Hebrews 10.14 as a parallel passage to that. And he died as our substitute. There's a debate that goes on between um, um, some who teach limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect, and then others like myself who teach unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone. And so I think of passages like Hebrews 2.9, uh, which tells us, uh, so that by the grace of God, here talking about Jesus, he might taste death for everyone. And 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ also died for sins once for all. And notice he died the just for the unjust. And the word for there translates one of two prepositions that are used in the New Testament that communicate the idea of substitution. Uh, the other is the uh, Greek preposition anti, A-N-T-I, anti. And it's the stronger of the two prepositions, but they both communicate the idea of substitution. This is the Greek preposition, huper, huper, H-U-P-E-R. And so when it says that, that he died once for all, that Christ died for sins once for all, the just huper, as a substitute for the unjust, that's me, that's you. And why did he die for us? Notice the purpose clause there in the next uh, sentence, so that. Uh, In other words, here we have a purpose clause, so that he might bring us to God, because we cannot bring ourselves to God. We cannot. It's impossible. But he died in order that he might bring us to God. And so this was accomplished at the cross. Also, 1 John 2, 2, 
which says, talking about Jesus, that he himself is the propitiation for our sins. That he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, notice, but also for those of the whole world. For those of the whole world, that is all humanity. So when he says that he is the propitiation for our sins, there John is talking to believers. And when he says, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, he's talking about unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone. Now, even though the death of Christ is sufficient for all to be saved, it is effective only to those who believe. In other words, the benefits of the cross are applied only to those who believe in him. Furthermore, Jesus was resurrected, and when he was resurrected, he was resurrected never to die again. Romans 6, 9 says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, this is a truth of scripture, he was raised from the dead, is never to die again. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul here talking about the gospel. He's giving the content of the gospel. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what was it that Paul received? What was that information? Here it is that Christ died for our sins, and this according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Notice the second time, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, uh, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. But when he talks about uh, the fact that Christ died for our sins, here uh, Paul uses... Uh, that Greek preposition, again as a substitute, and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died for you? That he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day and seen by many? Um, I do. I accept that as historical fact. I believe the record of Scripture, that the Scriptures are true, and that what is recorded is an accurate historical account of the person, the words, and the work of Jesus Christ, and most notably his work upon the cross. And believing this about him, I then trust in him. I believe in him and trust him to save me, to do for me what I cannot do for myself, to save me. For if I could save myself, then Christ would have never had to have come and died. But his death is a testimony of the fact of this thing which I cannot do, For by grace, the scripture says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. And so, uh, eternal life is then granted to us by Jesus. Uh, It is granted to us who place our trust, our confidence, our rest, our faith solely in him. And listen, it is 100% of trust in Jesus. It's not Jesus plus me plus some good works or any of that sort of thing. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Um, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes, notice, in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 10, 28, Jesus said, and here he's talking about those who are believers, those who are his sheep. He says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. They will never perish. But when he says, I give, here he uses the Greek verb, 
didomi, didomi. And the word here, the form in the Greek, is a present active indicative. The present tense speaks of a right now truth. You see, eternal life is what you have at the moment of faith in Christ. When I was younger, 35 plus years ago, when I was younger in my faith, I used to think of eternal life as something that future that I took possession of when I left this world and entered into the eternal state. Uh, But I've been corrected since then. Uh, Many, many years ago, I was corrected about 30 years ago, actually. And I came to understand through the uh, scriptures themselves that eternal life is what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, it finds its fullest expression uh, when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth. And furthermore, eternal life not only speaks of the duration, it not only has a, uh, a, 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 a duration element to it, but there's also a qualitative element to it, that it speaks about experience. And this is why Jesus said in John 17 uh, that they may uh, know the Father, that, that, that they may know him. And Paul writes to Timothy and he tells him to take hold of the eternal life to take hold of the eternal life. And so there is a there is a an aspect to the eternal life which is experiential and I've taught about this in other lessons too. But here and by the way it says it's it's in the present tense. The active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. This means that Jesus is the one who gives the eternal life and the indicative mood is simply declarative for a statement of fact. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And Acts 16.31, when the Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul and Silas and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, They said to him, very simply, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You see, salvation is not faith plus our works. No, no. Salvation is faith alone in Christ and what he did for us at the cross. Nothing more. Nothing more. And we should understand that Jesus died for everyone, as I talked about here a little bit ago. But the benefits of the cross, such as forgiveness of sins and eternal life, are applied only to those who believe in him. You see, in him, Ephesians 1, seven, we have redemption through his blood. We have, what, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of trespasses, and this according to the riches of his grace. You see, Christ shed his blood upon the cross to atone for our sins, and the, shed of, and the, and the blood of Christ is the only coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. It's the only currency of heaven that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. And so in, uh, when we trust in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life, and really many, many other blessings. I've covered this in other lessons as well. And these are all applied uh, only to those who believe in him as Savior. Now, concerning the character of God, the Bible reveals that God is holy, which means he is righteous and set apart from all that is sinful. And he can have nothing to do with sin except to condemn it. Psalm 11.7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. Notice, for holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord our God. 
By the way, I think of the passage also in Isaiah 6-3 where you have the angels, the seraphim, who are crying out to one another. And what do they say to one another? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Habakkuk 1-3 tells us, uh, speaking of God, it says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. You see, God cannot approve of sin at all. He can only judge it. And 1 John 1, 5 tells us that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. This means that God is pure and free from all that is sinful. And again, being an absolutely righteous, being absolutely righteous, God can only hate and condemn sin. Proverbs 8.13, God said, Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And to say that he hates it means that he rejects it. To say that he loves something means that he accepts it. So he says, And the perverted mouth I hate. And let and Zechariah 8.17, Let none of you devise evil in your heart against one another, and do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. And Deuteronomy twenty-five one or twenty-five sixteen, uh, that it is that of God it is written that everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. Psalm five five says you hate all who do iniquity. Psalm forty-five seven says you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Proverbs fifteen nine says in the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. And Proverbs 15.26 tells us, and, and evil plans are an abomination to the Lord. And again, Hebrews 1.9, citing the Old Testament passage that says, You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And we might think of other passages. We might think of a passage in Colossians 3 or um, oh, in Romans 1.18, where it talks about how the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the problem, again, is that all mankind is sinful. So to be saved, a person must accept the divine viewpoint estimation of himself as sinful before God. You see, it's not what we think of ourselves. It's not what others think of us. It's what does God think of us. And this is why getting into the scripture and understanding what God thinks about us is really the standard by which we ought to operate. So to be saved, a person must accept the divine viewpoint estimation of himself as sinful before God. Now the Bible reveals in 1 Kings 8.46, it says, There is no man who does not sin. There is no man who does not sin. And Psalm 143 verse 2 says, No man living is righteous. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, And there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good, and who never sins. And Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 64.6 says, And all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. What's interesting is here, it's, it's not focusing so much on our sin as much as it is our righteousness. Notice the language, that all of our righteous deeds... Now, here's the problem. 
the standard for a relationship with God and entrance into heaven is his righteousness. That's the standard that we must measure up to. The problem is, is our human production of good, our human production of righteousness, never measures up to the perfect righteousness of God. And so here in Isaiah, when it says, and all our righteous deeds, all of our best efforts, all of our good works, all of our good production are like a filthy garment. Now, the translators have been nice here uh, in the translation, but I think they've lost the force or the punch of the passage because the, the words filthy garment literally translate a menstrual rag is literally what it translates as. And so how we might understand this is that if we were to take all of our good works throughout all of our life, everybody we've helped, every kind deed, every good work, everything we've done, take all of them and put them into a bag, bring them to God, and demand the trade-in value, it would be worth one menstrual rag, which would not be acceptable in the sight of God's. And basically it says what God thinks about our good works, that they never measure up to the righteousness of God. Now listen, God is not against good works. In fact, as believers, he calls us to good works in the spirit, but we must differentiate works done in the flesh as over against works done in the spirit. I've talked about this in other lessons, um, so let's not confuse those two. Uh, But going back to the notes here, uh, Romans 3.10, it says, and there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. By the way, the word sin here translates the Greek noun hamartia, hamartia. And if you ever study systematic theology, you'll study a number of ologies. You'll study, uh, for example, a theology proper. You'll study bibliology. Uh, If it's a good systematic theology, you'll study Israelology. You'll study biblical anthropology, the study of man. You'll study Satanology, angelology, demonology. Uh, You will study soteriology, which is the study of salvation. But you will also study uh, hamartiology, hamartiology, which is the study of sin. Other things you may study would be like ecclesiology, the study of the church, and things like eschatology. Uh, which is the study of final things or end times, or maybe pneumatology, the study of the Spirit, and those sorts of things. But uh, the word hamartiology comes from this noun here, hamartia. And by the way, when we think of a a noun, we think of a person, place, or thing. So John here, and by the way, he's talking to believers. In fact, he even includes himself. He says, if we, which includes John, if we say that we have no sin, and we might say sin thing, And here he's talking about the sin nature, that sin nature that we were born with, uh, whereby we came into the world with this sinful proclivity to want to sin, to act in rebellion against God and all legitimate forms of authority. By the way, let me backtrack here for just a second. Earlier when I was talking about parthenogenesis and uh, the virgin conception, virgin born, the fact that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary supernaturally and did not have a biological father is significant uh, because the sin nature and Adam's original sin is passed on from the father to the children. And so the fact that Jesus did not have a biological father meant that Adam's original sin and the sin nature was not transmitted to Jesus. 
So when Jesus came into the world, he came into the world minus his sin nature. He had no internal sin nature that we have. He's perfectly human minus the sin nature. He's perfectly human as Adam was created before the fall minus a sin nature. And so Jesus then went his entire life, and that was the challenge. Would he go his entire life and commit no sin? And he did that. Mission accomplished. And then he went to the cross and died in our place. But here, even as believers, we still continue to possess the sin nature. So John says if we say that we have no sin or no sin nature, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In 1 John 1.10, he says if we say that we have not sinned, and here he looks at the Greek verb, hamartano, hamartano, and here it's talking about uh, production because a verb speaks of action or activity. And so if we say that we have not sinned, that is, if we have not produced sin from the source of our volition, uh, then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Uh, Solomon asked in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? The answer is, no one at least no one who is honest. Now the answer is, in fact, again, no one. God is righteous and we are guilty sinners. And biblically we are said to be sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. To be a sinner in Adam means that when Adam fell, we fell with him. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, Uh, And by the way, the New Testament and Scripture treats Adam as a real historical person uh, who lived in time and space. This whole idea of liberal theology that, uh, that, you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are just myth. Well, that's pure bunk because the New Testament doesn't treat it that way. It treats it as uh, historical fact. But Paul says here, therefore, just as through one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. When did we all sin? We all sinned when Adam sinned. And so we are born into the family of Adam, uh, which, by the way, is also in Satan's domain of darkness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For since by a man, again, Adam came death, by a man, that's Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead, that is victory over death. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And it's almost as though Adam, excuse me, it's almost as though Paul sees two lines of people before the throne of God. One is this line of Adam, which speaks of fallen humanity, condemned humanity. And then we have the the last Adam, we have Christ. And uh, we are all born biologically into the family of Adam, into the line of Adam. But we are born again at the moment of faith in Christ, and we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We become children of the living God. We become brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are adopted into the royal family of God um, at the moment of faith in Christ. So a real transference occurs at the moment of faith in Christ. But biblically, we are said to be sinners in Adam. We are said to be sinners by nature. Paul talks about this when he talks about the struggle between his two natures in Romans 7, because here Paul is talking as a Christian. And in one sense, he has a new nature that wants to serve the Lord. And that is true of all who are born again, that we have this new nature that wants to serve the Lord. But we see a different law in our body waging war 
and that's the sin nature that is constantly in conflict. Paul says in Romans 7.18, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And here he's talking about his body. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that... And here he's talking about uh, I the new and I the old. And you kind of have to trace his, uh, his thought process here as he navigates through this. He says, For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very thing that I do not want to do. And here he's talking about that conflict between the two natures. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And Paul says in verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And this is that conflict between two natures. Um... Paul talks about this in Galatians 5.17, where he says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. They're always in opposition to each other. It's the civil war that goes on within. And then I've already hit the passages that talk about how we are sinners by choice. I've already covered that. Now, sin separates us from God and renders us helpless, helpless, to merit God's approval. And again, we're talking about humanity from the divine perspective. What does the scripture say? You see, all humanity is quite competent to produce sin, but utterly inept and powerless to produce the righteousness that God requires for for acceptance. You see, the Bible reveals that we are helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. The Bible does not present a flattering view of mankind. There's four words that are found in Romans 5, 6 through 10 that I've highlighted here that jump off the page every time I read this. Paul says in verse 6, For while we were still helpless, 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 and you might underscore these words, highlight them, put little asterisks around them, because this is the state of fallen mankind. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly, not the good not the moral, not not the wonderful, because we were not, we are not. We are helpless, we are ungodly. Um, he goes on in verse 8, he says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, that's the third category, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, again, not when we were seeking him, not when we were good or moral, because we're not. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies... Uh, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more shall we, uh, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. But the language here is really, it's really quite condemning. I mean, let's be honest, to describe us as helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. And prior to our salvation, we were said to be dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, we cannot save ourselves. And I'm emphasizing this very clearly. No good works before, during, or after salvation have any saving value. None whatsoever. You see, only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Colossians 1.13 says, For he rescued us. There's, there's, a, there's salvation there. He rescued us. And notice where we were rescued from. From the domain of darkness. 
because all humanity resides in Satan's world system, Cosmos Diabolicus. We are all trapped in that system. We are born into that system, into that slave market of sin, and utterly helpless to save ourselves. And if he did not rescue us, there is no rescue to be had. There is no rescue to be had. And he rescued us. Not we participated in it, not we helped. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. And where did he transfer us to? He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We got transferred over into the royal family of God. Notice verse 14, in whom, that is in the son, in whom we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins. And only God can give the gifts of righteousness and eternal life that make us acceptable in his sight. You see, often we think about righteousness as something we do for God, but let me share with you something, and this is a lesson that I've taught before and I will be teaching again in the near future, that talks about uh, the subject of imputed righteousness. You see, the Bible reveals that there is a righteousness that comes from God to us at the moment of salvation. There is a righteous, it's the very righteousness of God. It's His righteousness. It's not my righteousness. Uh, it's His righteousness, and it comes to us from Him, and it's a gift. In fact, in Romans 5.17, Paul calls it the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him, that is God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become, notice, the righteousness of God in Him. This is the righteousness of God. This is not my righteousness. It's the gift of righteousness. Philippians 3.9, Paul, in the previous verses, having talked about his life in Judaism as a Pharisee, as, as one who tried to follow the law and the energy of his flesh, and, and to make himself righteous before God. And he talks about his life in Judaism prior to faith in Christ. And he says, he says look, I'm, I'm throwing that all the way. I, I place no confidence in that at all. In fact, in verse 8, he says, more than that, I count all things uh, concerning his past life in Judaism. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, Notice, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Count them but rubbish. Again, here the translators have been nice to us. And rubbish is a, is a, is a fine word. It, it communicates the idea of trash. But the Greek noun is skubalon. Skubalon, which literally means fecal matter. And so you can translate that how you want, that he counts all things skubalon so that I may gain Christ. And notice verse 9, and may be found in him. Notice, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Let's be clear here. He says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that, that is that righteousness, which is through faith in Christ. Notice the righteousness which comes from God. It's the righteousness which comes from God. How? On the basis of faith. Because at the moment of faith in Christ, God takes his righteousness and he gives it to you as a gift. You possess, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior and trusted in Christ alone, then you possess the very gift of righteousness. You possess the very righteousness of God. It has been credited to your account. It has been imputed to you. And, uh, and so we should understand 
and I've also covered this in past lessons, that when we think about God's attributes, we think about righteousness and justice as two that work together in tandem. Because what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. Now, the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. And God has taken his righteousness and he has put it within you. And therefore, the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. And so he then opens up the floodgates of blessings upon you because you possess the very righteousness of God. But if you come to God on your own human effort, by your own human works, by your own righteousness and the energy of your flesh as an unbeliever, that never wins God's approval because the righteousness of God does not approve of the righteousness of man. Remember, all, that our right, all of our righteous deeds are like, a, are like a menstrual rag. It's unacceptable to God. And so uh, the righteousness of God rejects the righteousness of man. And therefore, the righteousness of man results in his condemnation. This is why when you look at Romans uh, 20, verse 15, where it talks about all unbelievers stand before the great white throne judgment, and, uh, and no believers will be there, but these unbelievers, it says, are judged according to their deeds, that is, their good works. And the problem is, is that their good works don't measure up to the righteousness of God. And so they are cast into the lake of fire as a result. So again, only God can give the gifts of righteousness and eternal life. And I've already talked about John 10, 28, uh, but I'll read it quickly here. He says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Eternal life is a gift. It's a gift. And these are what make us acceptable in the sight of God. You see, our, our good works have no saving merit, no saving merit whatsoever. If you go back to Romans 4, and I'll cover this briefly here as well. I've hit this in past lessons, so I'll be brief here. But Paul says in Romans 4, 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. Now we might, we might render the verse this way. We might say, now to the one who works a 40-hour work week, his paycheck, his wage or his paycheck, is not credited to his account, to his checking account as a favor or as a gift, but as what is due or owed to him. You see, I work a full-time job. And uh, when I work a full-time job, I, I go to my employer, and I've been there for 19 plus years, and I work a 40-hour work week. And I every time uh, I work that work week, I put my employer into debt. And every two weeks, my employer alleviates that debt by taking money from their checking account and putting it into my checking account. And so then we're back to zero. And then, and then we repeat the process again. And we've been doing this now. We've had this arrangement for years. Uh, but when my employer gives me my paycheck, it's not credited to my checking account as a favor. And the word favor there translates the Greek noun kodos. Kodos, we get the word for grace, which is unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, unwarranted love. And so when my employer puts, my, puts, a, uh, puts money into my checking account, it's not a gift. They're not being kind to me. It's not regarded as grace, but what is owed to me. Now listen, in the realm of mankind, God has created work and he has created the work week. In fact, he created the six-day work week back in uh, Exodus chapter 20 when he gave the law. You know, six days you shall labor and so on. 
And so work is valid. Work is valid as a system that God has created for mankind. And living in a properly functioning world, we live in a meritocratic system where we are uh, rewarded according to our um, uh, according to our work. And so it's a, it's a meritocracy, uh, ideally. When I went to college, when I was working on my undergraduate degree, my master's and my doctorate, uh, which required a dissertation, uh, when I was doing all of my school studies, when I got grades, um, and I got good grades, but when I got grades, I earned those. I worked for those. The professor wasn't given, there was no gift. <laughs> uh, I earned that. And this is just this is just true to life. And though work and compensation is a valid system in the realm of humanity, divinely sanctioned by God, even though that's valid, you cannot take that system, that paradigm, and, and bring it to God with regard to salvation. It doesn't work, you see. And the salvation system is a grace system. It is a grace system. And I, when I came to understand grace, I mean, it opened up my world in ways that I could never have understood before. It just, it just blew my mind. And so uh, God saves not on the basis of works. Do not bring a works paradigm to a salvation paradigm. That's a grace paradigm that's completely different. God saves us by grace. Grace caught us. Caris, C-H-A-R-I-S, C-H-A-R-S, Caris. We get the word charisma, charismatic, which in some, uh, when, we, when we use the word, we think of something beautiful or attractive. And it certainly has that quality about it. But the primary meaning of the word means undeserved. It means you don't deserve it. You deserve, in fact, the opposite. If you got what you deserve, trust me, we'd all be dead, we'd all be damned. Um, but salvation is not based upon what we deserve. It is based upon the grace of God, and grace has to do with the kindness and the bounty and the goodness and the open-handedness of the giver, and is no way predicated upon the beauty or worth of the object, because the object is unlovely, unworthy, helpless, a sinner, ungodly, an enemy of God, dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not deserve salvation. We do not deserve the love of God. God loves us because of who he is and not because of who we are. He loves us because he is love and he loves us and we were made in the image of God and God desires to save us. It is, it is, it is not the will of God that anyone should perish, but that should everyone should come to repentance. That is to, to believe in Christ as Savior, to turn from whatever system they're trusting in and to trust in him and him alone because that's what repentance means. It's a change of mind. You turn from whatever it is you're trusting in and you trust in Christ and Christ alone because man needs only Christ to be saved. So again, Paul is contrasting two systems here. Again, verse 4, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. It's not a gift, but what is due to him. But notice verse 5, but to the one who does not work, does not work. Underscore that, highlight that, put little asterisks around that. Let, let that all draw your attention. Think upon this. To the one who does not work, does not work, does not work, but believes trusts in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, God gives you that righteousness at the moment of faith in Christ. And we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But please understand, faith does not save. 
Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that salvation. It is the instrument. So again, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified. Justified before who? Before God. Uh, in James chapter 2, he talks about being justified before people, but that's not justified before God. Uh, that's a completely different context. But here he makes it very clear that a man is not justified, that is in the sight of God, by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. And listen, if something's a gift, it means it was paid in full by the other person and received freely. No strings attached. And listen, if you have to work for it at all, if you have to pay anything for it, it's not a gift. If you pay for it, if you work for it, it's not a gift. It means you bought it. It means you earned it. But salvation is a gift, and it's 100% of God. None of you, none of you, you do nothing. You get no praise, no glory, no honor, no credit, nothing for you. You get the benefit, you get salvation, but all the glory belongs to Christ and Christ alone. For by grace, by undeserved favor, by unmerited kindness, you have been saved through faith. And again, faith doesn't save, Christ saves. And that not of yourselves, not of yourselves. Salvation is not of yourselves. It's not of you. You can't work your way into heaven. It's not of you. Salvation is the gift of God. It's the gift of God, not of works. Notice, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If you add to your salvation, if, if your works enter into it at all, you get to boast. But that nullifies, that nullifies the whole offer. It has to be received freely, by grace, through faith, no human works at all. Now, you say, well, what about works? Well, works are valid in the Christian life. Works, good works should follow your salvation, but they're never the condition of it. Again, good works should follow salvation. And good works have a place in the in the Christian life. They earn you rewards in the eternal state. They glorify God. They edify others. Listen, there's a place for good works in the life of Christian. They glorify God. They edify others because you, you, you do good. You live sacrificially. You love others. You give to help meet their needs. You build them up. That's good. And God recognizes that. And he gives you rewards in eternity for that. Uh, but those are never applied to salvation. Never, never, never. And that's why Ephesians uh, 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. As a believer, we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And again, good works should follow salvation, but they are never, never, never the condition of it. Salvation is a gift. Okay, And Titus 3.5, he saved us. It's always a top-down truth. It's never we save ourselves. It's never we participate in that. It's he saved us. He saved us. And notice how he saved us, what it says here. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, 
which we have done in righteousness. That's not how we're saved. We are not saved on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You see, we cannot save ourselves any more than we can stop the rotation of the earth, jump across the Grand Canyon, or run at the speed of light. We can't do those things. Now listen, uh, if we were to, st- all, if all humanity were to line up uh, at the edge of the Grand Canyon and give a good run and, and do our best to jump across, some of us might jump a little bit further than the other, but we are all going to fall short. If we were to all stand outside on a clear night and look at a bright moon and pick up rocks and try to throw and hit the moon, some of us might throw a little further than the other, but we are all going to fall short. And that's the way it is with our works. That, that's the way it is with us trying to save ourselves. We can't do it. So we cannot save ourselves any more than we can stop the rotation of the earth, jump across the Grand Canyon, uh, run at the speed of light, or throw rocks and hit the moon. Christ alone saves. No one else. Nothing more. And salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The Bible teaches in Romans 3.24 that we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We have been justified as a gift by His grace. And again, it's a gift. If you have to work for it or earn it in any way, it's not a gift. Okay, But we have been justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28 says that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from the works of the law. So salvation is free and, is re- and it is received freely. Romans 4.5 again, uh, by the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You see, our, our salvation was accomplished entirely by Jesus at the cross when he shed his blood on Calvary. For we are redeemed, Peter says, with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And again, the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm. It's the only currency that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. And because our salvation was accomplished in full at the cross, it means there's nothing for us to pay, nothing at all. Salvation is a gift given freely to us who don't deserve it. That's grace, which is unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, unwarranted love, unearned generosity, and unprovoked goodness. Scripture reveals again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Again, salvation is never what we do for God. Rather, it's what he's done for us by sending his Son into the world to live a righteous life and die a penal substitutionary death on the cross in our place. Jesus died for us. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us, he might bring us to God. Our faith needs to be in Jesus alone. And of course, this is the Jesus of the Bible, for no other Jesus will do. A false Jesus does not save anyone, such as the Jesus of Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
The Jesus of Scripture is the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, who added perfect humanity to himself nearly 2,000 years ago. He was born of a virgin in the prophesied city of Bethlehem, a descendant of Abram and David, a descendant of Abraham and David, as the Jewish Messiah, and he lived a sinless life. He lived a sinless life. Second Corinthians five twenty one says he made him who knew no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Uh, Hebrews four fifteen says uh, that that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. First Peter two twenty two he committed no sin. First John three five he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He is the sinless Son of God, the theanthropic person, the God man, and in his humanity he lived an absolutely righteous life, and he went to a cross and died for us. John ten eighteen Jesus said, No one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down. You see, the Father sent and Christ went. Christ was a willing uh, person who came into this world and went and laid down his life. He was not murdered. He was crucified, and during that time he was made to bear the wrath of God regarding our sin on the cross between noon and three when he hung between heaven and earth. He bore the wrath of God concerning our sin. That's true. But then you get to John 19.30, and the last thing Jesus said uh, was, It is finished. Uh, to telestai in the Greek. It's in the perfect tense, which means that the past action is complete, but the emphasis is on the abiding results. It stands finished forever. It stands finished to today. And then it says that he exhaled and gave up his spirit. He did not inhale. You see, he laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. Nobody took it from him. And he atoned for our sins. He bore the penalty for our sins. And he was raised again on the third day. Acts 10.41 says God raised him up on the third day. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, For if we believe that Jesus died, and we do, and rose again, and we do, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep fallen asleep in Jesus. And when he was resurrected, he was never to die again, Romans 6, 9. You see, this is the Jesus of the Scripture, the one who saves those who trust solely in him for salvation. No one else can save. Scripture says of Jesus in John three fifteen that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It is faith alone. It is not faith plus works. The Arminian would say faith plus works equals salvation. The Calvinist would say true faith equals justification plus works, and they would add works on the tail end of that. That's called lordship salvation. That's wrong. It is faith alone in Christ alone. That is all that is needed, and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John 3.16, and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And John 3.18, he who believes in him is not judged. And John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. And Jesus said in John 6.47, he says, truly I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. It's very straightforward. In John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes uh, in me will live even if he dies. And in John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Because Christ is the only way to be saved. There's simply no other option available to mankind. This is why in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. There is Christ and Christ alone. There's simply no other way to be saved. Listen, all the religions of the world can come up with ideas on how to save themselves, of how to earn their way to heaven, and that will damn them. That way of thinking will damn them because Christ and Christ alone is the only one who saves, and it is only through faith in Christ that one comes to the Father. Uh, the Apostle John wrote in, in 1 John five twelve, He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life of God. You see, and these passages emphasize that eternal life is obtained through, through belief in Jesus Christ. Salvation is exclusively in Jesus, and those who reject Jesus as Savior will spend eternity away from God in the lake of fire. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In Revelation 20.15, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And listen, this is all avoidable if one turns to Christ and Christ alone. So to be saved, one must turn to Christ alone for salvation and trust Him one hundred percent. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in works. Don't trust in religion. Don't trust in anything in this world. Nothing. Trust in Christ and Christ alone and trust him to accomplish what we cannot. That is to rescue us from eternal damnation, to give us life and righteousness and a place forever in heaven. We must believe the gospel message. The gospel message is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the content of the gospel. We understand who he is and what he did for us. And then knowing the good news of what God accomplished for us through Christ, we must then, as Acts 16, 31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus. We must trust him. We know what he did for us. He died for us. He was buried. He was raised again. He was seen by many. And when we accept we accept that as historical fact, we can then trust in Christ and Christ alone. We can believe in Him. And that's what salvation is. It's very simple. It's salvation is by grace alone. You don't earn it or deserve it. It's predicated on the goodness of God. Okay? And it is by grace alone, through faith alone. We simply trust in Christ. And that's it. It is faith alone in Christ. Christ alone, not Christ plus works, not Christ plus anything else. I don't. I struggle sometimes to to keep the language as simple as I can, and and sometimes I I hope that it's communicating. So then we must believe in the Lord Jesus and trust exclusively in Him, as Acts four twelve tells us that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So we should not look to ourselves for salvation, for there is nothing in us that can save us, nothing at all. Christ alone saves, no one else, nothing more. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, once we come to faith in Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, we are called to walk worthy of the Lord. That is our new position. This is a, the life that we are to live. We have been transferred, as Colossians 1.13 tells us, from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Galatians 3.26 tells us that we are all sons of God through faith in Christ. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are children of the living God. We are brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. That is our new position. We need to learn to 
act like it. We need to expunge a lifetime of human viewpoint and that came to us via television, literature, music, and, and just natural human perspective. We need to remove all that and replace all that with divine viewpoint that is God's word in flowing in the stream of our consciousness really needs to saturate our thoughts. Now Ephesians 4.1 tells us uh, that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You see, your performance as a Christian needs to be that of your position in Christ. You are in Christ. That's your new identity. And you now need to conduct yourselves as those who are in Christ, as part of the royal family of God. Philippians uh, 2.7, Paul says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Colossians 1.10 says, To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. You see, salvation is simple. It's so simple a child can do it. People stumble over the simplicity of it. That's the problem. It's so simple that a child can believe in Christ and be saved. And listen, salvation is simple. Discipleship, that's tough. Discipleship is taking up your cross. It is dying daily. Discipleship is surrendering all of your life to the Lordship of Christ. Discipleship is about surrendering everything that you are, your thoughts, your words, your actions, your marriage, your work, your education, your resources, your home. Everything in your life is surrendered to God. That's discipleship. That's phase two of the Christian life. But let's, let's not confuse, let's not conflate discipleship, let's not confuse sanctification with justification. Those are separate. One follows the other. It should follow the other. But listen, if walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is automatic, if it automatically happens, then these sorts of directives would be superfluous. They would be absolutely unnecessary. But these directives are set forth because uh, justification being made right in the sight of God because of faith in Christ, justification doesn't guarantee sanctification. It doesn't guarantee that we will advance to maturity. I mean, you can read about the saints who were, in fact, saints in, 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 in Corinth. Read the First Corinthians, and you'll read about saints. Paul calls them saints, by the way, which is simply a synonym for a Christian. That's all it is. The Catholic Church has butchered all that with this uh, super classification of you know, hyper-saintly uh, uh, persons. That's all nonsense. You don't find that in Scripture. The Corinthians were saints. Um, and Paul calls them that in the first couple verses in uh, Corinthians, in First Corinthians. But you look at their life, they're very carnal. But we are called to walk in a manner. And discipleship, uh, that's tough. That's tough. I say welcome to Christianity. Now, in biblical language, the term walk often represents one's way of life or conduct. It's a metaphor for the journey of life and how one navigates it. To walk worthy emphasizes the importance of living in a manner that is fitting or appropriate for the calling we have received as Christians. You see, we are children of God by faith in Christ, Galatians 3.26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. That's how you got into the family. It was faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. Put a bow on it. We're done. At least as far as coming into the family of God. And we are adopted brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords, and our performance in life should match that of our position in Christ. Salvation is free, 
Again, I want to emphasize that. It's a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary. And God's gift is received freely by grace, no strings attached, and is received by faith alone in Christ alone. That's all. However, living the sanctified life, phase two of our, of our salvation... And by the way, I'm referring to that because there's really three phases of salvation. Uh, Phase one is our justification. That's where we're saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two is our sanctification. That's where we're saved from the power of sin. Phase three is our glorification. That's when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state. And there we are saved from the presence of sin. So phase one, justification, saved from the penalty of sin. Phase two, sanctification, uh, we are being saved from the power of sin. Phase three, our glorification, we are saved from the very presence of sin. Okay, so that's how I'm using the language here. So again, living the sanctified life as a new Christian is radical and calls for commitment to God. It's radical. I mean, let's, let's see, it's taking up your cross, it's dying daily. It's surrendering all of your life to God. And this requires positive volition and dedication to learning and living God's Word on a daily basis. And it's always in that order because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's Word always precedes living God's will. So we learn it, we learn it, we learn it in order that we might live it. But learning it is no guarantee that we'll live it. That's why James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the Word and not merely hearers only, because it is possible to take in the Word of God. That is possible, but then not to apply it. That's why he says over in James 4.17, I think, where he says, to him who knows the right thing to do uh, and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, it is possible to know the right thing to do, to have divine viewpoint, and yet not to live by it. So again, this requires positive volition and a dedication to learning and living God's Word on a daily basis. It means prioritizing and structuring our lives in a way that factors God and His Word into everything. It means bringing all aspects of our lives, our marriage, our family, our education, our work, our finances, resources, and entertainment under the authority of Christ. I know Christians who, and I've done it, trust me, I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, but there are times where we can compartmentalize. We can we can we can submit um, our finances, our marriage, our work to uh, to Christ, but not not our vacation time, not uh, not some other aspect of our life. So again, ideally, I'm talking about it here in 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 the ideal sense. It means bringing all aspects of our lives under the authority of Christ. This is the sanctified life. It's when we learn the word and live the word. Jeremiah um, fifteen sixteen. Uh, he said, "Your words were found, and I ate them." That's, that's the intake, that's the acquisition, the intake of the Word of God. And notice what goes on in his soul. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. <laughs> oh boy, it is. It is. When you're positive to the Lord and you're taking in the Word, it is a delight. That's why Psalm 1, uh, 2 says, speaking of the righteous man, but his delight is in the, is in the law of the Lord. It's in the Torah the instruction of the Lord, and in his instruction he meditates Haggah. And Haggah is contrasted, uh, meditation in the biblical sense is contrasted with that of the pagan worldviews, which is an emptying of the mind. Here Haggah connotes the idea of filling the mind, filling the mind. He meditates on the uh, word of God day and night. And what's the benefit? He will be like a tree that is firmly planted by streams of water. You can imagine a tree planted next to a stream with its roots extending down into the life-nourishing water and drawing upon that. 
And what's the benefit which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does, he prospers. I love Ezra 7.10. It says, for Ezra had set his heart. That's positive volition. You see, there's positive volition on display here. He wants to know the Lord. He wants to walk with the Lord. He wants to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what did he set his heart to do? To study the law of the Lord, to get into the word of God and to let the word of God get into him and to practice it because you've got to put it into practice. You've got to put it into practice. It's not just enough to learn it. You've got to live it. That's why it's called a walk of faith, a walk of faith. And then third, he said, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. And so he was a communicator of the word of God as a priest. That's what priests did. Priests communicated the law. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. And there he uses the Greek noun graphe, which refers to the written word. All scripture is inspired by God. Pasa graphe theopneustos is the Greek it's inspired by God. It, it, it originates from God. The Word of God itself originates from God. And it is profitable to us in at least four ways here for teaching because we need to be taught. We need to be taught. You don't just live the Christian life. You have to learn it. And for reproof to show us where we're wrong. And it's not just enough to show us where we're wrong, but to correct us and show us for what is right. And for training in righteousness. For training in righteousness. I want to live the righteous life. I want to live the righteous life, but I cannot do that apart from the Word of God. I need the intake of Scripture. It trains me in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, equipped for every good work. And this is the work that is done according to God's directives. This is not human production, human righteousness, and the energy of the flesh. This is the this is us being obedient to the word believers, obedient to the word believers. And when we take that in, we are equipped for every good work. I want to do good works as God defines them, as God directs me. As God fills me with his spirit and empowers me to execute those works on a daily basis, I have to have the word of God to equip me for every good work. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it, by the word of God, you may grow in respect to your salvation. You may grow, auxano, to grow, to advance that you may grow in respect to your salvation. Second Peter 3.18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you need grace. You need grace. If I were to study the Bible eight hours a day, every day for a thousand years, at the end of that time I would still be directed to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And to walk by faith. Second Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. I love Romans 10, 17, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. You see, you have to be exposed to the word of God and hearing by the word of Christ. And Hebrews 10, 38, God says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith. And Hebrews eleven six, which says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And as we do do these things, we will advance to maturity. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to press on to maturity. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to go from being babes in Christ to being fully developed adults, mature believers who operate by divine viewpoint, who take in the Word of God and, who's, and, and the Word of God so saturates our thinking that it literally frames life. It helps us to understand everything we understand according to Hebrews 11.4. I love this passage. He says... Um, 
Um, now that's not it. Uh, uh, verse 3 here, By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So by faith we understand... And so from the intake of the Word of God, we accept Genesis 1-1 as fact, uh, which says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, I realize that the whole universe and the earth came into being because the infinite personal God uh, created it and brought it into being, and he created it over six days. He worked on the earth, he shaped it, he formed it, and he created everything in a state of maturity. All the plants were created in a state of maturity, having fruit upon them. And on day six, when he created the first man, Adam, in Genesis 2-7, when he formed him from the dust of the earth, and one can almost imagine, imagine yourself in the garden, and God here in theophonic form, he's there in physical form, and he's created Adam, and he forms him, and there's Adam in front of him uh, in with biological life. He's there in front of him, and then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, the Neshamach Hayim, and Adam takes in that breath, and at that moment, Adam becomes a living soul. And so he, the composition of man is both material and immaterial. And so God then gives him language, and immediately God has entered into a conversation with Adam, and he instructs him. And language is a wonderful thing. It originates with God. It originates with God because there were discussions, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us, that's discussion among the members of the Trinity. God said, let us make man in our image, Salem, such that man, our people, are finite analogs to God. We are theomorphs, as it were, and he created us with a sense of purpose to rule over the earth. We were to function as theocratic administrators over God's creation. Now, we fell, we forfeited that, we all, Adam gave that up when he sinned and he gave that to, to Satan, and that's another discussion on another day. But when I look at uh, the Bible, the Bible helps me to understand that the universe came into being and, and the earth came into being and plants and animals and people were created in a sh in a, all in a, within a few days. And the fact that you have morning and evening speaks of a 24-hour day period. And the use of Hebrew numerals also communicates the idea of a 24-hour period. But if we had walked into the garden uh, literally five minutes after Adam was created, we would not have looked at Adam and thought, oh, he's five minutes old. You see, our presuppositions, our normal operating assumptions don't apply when it comes to understanding what God did in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It doesn't apply. Because when I look at another person, I assume uh, that there's parents, that their parents got together, copulated, and produced them, and that their parents had parents, and their parents had parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. But you cannot take that paradigm, that normal operating assumption, and apply that to the creation account. It doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. Because I certainly would not have looked at Adam and thought he was five minutes old. No, uh, it doesn't apply. But see, this is where the Word of God reveals things and helps to correct our thinking. And the atheist, of course, uh, operates on uniformitarian hypotheses uh, that everything's in a state of decay and you can look back in time and you can extrapolate out and try to determine the, the, the age of the earth by layers of sediment and all this sort of stuff if you, if you look into that. Um, and ICR's done a really good job on that. But, you know, if I start with an atheistic assumption that God does not exist, as soon as God is out then you say, well, everything came into being and there's this idea of a big bang and that's because of an expanding universe and they keep pushing time back and you need deep time. You have to say uh, the universe is 13.8 billion years is the number and even that is not a big enough time. So now they're uh, coming up with all sorts of uh, fancy ideas about a multiverse and uh, a, a, a system that exists. And so they have to expand out because they can't expand back any further. Uh, and so this is them grasping at straws, the atheists. But they would say that everything that exists 
exists, because there is no infinite personal creator God, then everything that exists, as wonderful as they recognize that it is, is merely the product of matter, motion, time, and chance, because there's no reason for it to exist. And it reduces mankind to just the accidental collection of molecules, just evolving bags of protoplasm, that we come from the goo to the zoo to you, to borrow a phrase from Geisler. And ultimately it says that we come from nothing significant, we go to nothing significant, and we are in the end nothing significant. It reduces man to a zero. That's the evolutionary view. But that's not the biblical view. If I go with evolution, mankind is nothing. I'm nothing because there's no reason for us to exist. We are accidents in the universe. That's what we are if you hold to the atheistic worldview. But the biblical worldview elevates man. We are made in the image of God. We may be effaced but not erased as far as the image goes. But there is value to man because mankind is made in the image of God. But I also understand that we live in a fallen world. I also understand that there are that there are angels, holy angels, and fallen angels, and Lucifer leads them, and there's uh, a third of the angels fell, and you have this uh, group of angels called evil spirits, wicked spirits, demons, and they operate in the unseen realm, and the unseen realm and the physical realm uh, make up the whole of reality. These two realms interact, and what goes on in the angelic realm affects the physical realm. It affects politics and economics and economics and uh, academics and and social uh, activities. But what we do in our life as Christians also affects that realm. It affects the heavenly realm. And so things we do in time affect things heavenly and they affect things eternal. And this really kind of blows your mind when you take all these things in. Because again, as we advance to maturity, uh, as we grow... It will literally reshape our whole perspective on life. It's called a Christian worldview. And as we advance, God's word will saturate our thinking and govern our thoughts, words, and values, and actions. And by the way, one of the signs of maturity in the life of a Christian is when God and his word are more real than our feelings, more real than our experiences, and more real than our circumstances. And this is the place of spiritual maturity and stability. Unfortunately, we know that not everyone uh, answers the call to Christian service, as our justification, again, does not guarantee sanctification. But for those who have positive volition and who answer the call, the call to discipleship, there is no better life. There is no higher calling. There is no nobler pursuit than that which we live in our daily walk with the God of the universe who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because when we begin to walk with God, when we really begin to lay hold of the truths of Scripture, when they really begin to saturate into our very being and we really begin to live out the walk of faith, it will produce in you a personal sense of destiny that is tied not only to the infinite personal creator God, but to time and space, and you realize your life matters because God has called you to himself, and you have answered, you have trusted in Christ, and you are part of the family, and you have value, and God has blessed you. He's given you a spiritual gift. He has called you into a place of service. As those who are now the saints in light, we need to act like it. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 says, For you were formerly darkness. That's what we were. But now you are light in the Lord. That's your position. Notice what he says. Walk as children of light. You are light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And and what is the fruit of that? For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Romans 13, 12 says that we are to lay aside the deeds of darkness that we are to lay aside the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. 
And Philippians 2.15 tells us that we are to function in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And being a light in the world means helping those who are positive to God to know Him. It means sharing the Scripture with them. Excuse me. Um, Being a light in the world means helping those who are positive to God to know Him. We're talking about the unbeliever. It means sharing Scripture with them. It means sharing the gospel of grace to those who want to know God uh, so that they might be saved. And for Christians, for those of us who are Christians and when we meet other Christians who want to grow spiritually, it means helping them to know God's word so they can advance to spiritual maturity. And, you know, for those of you who, who have worked with me and, and who may know me, you know when I'm at, I'm at work, man, I'll interject scripture. I will talk scripture. I don't ram, cram, and jam it down people's throats. There's no place for that. No need to be unattractive. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so... But I'm not neutral. I talk scripture, I share scripture, and I try to do it in the most thoughtful and caring and diplomatic way that I can. But And for Christians who want to grow spiritually, it means helping them to know God's word so they can advance to spiritual maturity. This life that I'm talking about here, after we have trusted in Christ's Savior, honors the Lord, edifies others, and creates within us a personal sense of destiny that is tied to the infinite personal creator God who has called us into a relationship and a walk with him. Okay, so I hope that this lesson has been helpful, that it has been instructive, that it has encouraged you. Um, And I thank you for taking the time to uh, watch this lesson and to listen to this lesson. And I wish you a blessed day.